It's Raw, It's Real, It's Unkempt, a podcast for founders, investors, and entrepreneurs hosted by me, Leanne Kemp, Queensland's chief entrepreneur. And you know what? As the founder and CEO of Everledger, I know what it takes to start, scale up, and run successful global companies. And in this podcast series, I'm tapping into some of the extensive networks of experts around the globe to spotlight startup success stories and provide practical tips, advice for entrepreneurs and small business. And this week, I'm talking to Luke Ania, one of Queensland's unicorn company, Safety Culture, and I'll explain what an exit strategy is in three minutes or less. Leanne explaining in its fine form. Hey Luke, Hi, you're Leanne. in Brisbane. Yes. Super exciting. Luke Ania is the CEO of Safety Culture. He built the world's most used checklist app. Think of it like a modern day inspector gadget eye auditor is its name now luke you began safety culture in townsville 2004 and now more than 30,000 businesses rely on safety culture for compliance tell us safety culture what is it and not only that the road that led you to where we are today hi leanne um thanks for having me on your podcast um so safety culture did start in townsville in 2004 originally my background was as a private investigator, spying on people who'd been injured at work. And so I wanted to build a company that helped people not get injured in the first place. And so from 2004 to 2012, it was purely just like a safety docs business. We provide documentation for businesses. And then in 2012, we became a tech company when we released iAuditor. So iAuditor is now used to do workplace inspections and it's used about 600 million times a year. And um, people all over the world, when a plane takes off, they use our app when like a Starbucks store opens they check the story each day so yeah that sort of thing so it's been uh, a story with a few different chapters in it but uh, it's been pretty exciting from spies to inspectors my goodness there's only 24 hours in a day luke how do you do it what have you had to sacrifice to start and also scale safety culture uh well sacrifice a lot of uh, probably hobbies and things that uh, I, I might have been able to get good at along the way that i've had to just pour my time and energy into into building the business so um there's that and obviously you know family and things like that everybody comes with you on the journey so sacrifices have been many but um i think at the end of the day you need to focus on doing something well and um and that's what i've done for for a while now so uh it's seems to be working. These incredible scale-up CEOs, you often read these amazing articles in the morning, you wake up at five, you go for a 10 kilometre run, you've got these boost juices, you've done a bit of yoga and then the day starts at eight o'clock. What's a typical day like for you with a team that is actually global solving some grand challenges, particularly around COVID? Give us a little bit of insight into the life of Luke. Yeah, well, I think there's before COVID and after COVID, isn't there? Life's changed quite a bit, but I think, um, no, I've never been one to get up at five o'clock and do all that sort of stuff and uh, I think um, yeah I generally wake up at about 6 37 o'clock and uh, start my day um, pretty normally I think I'll, I'll um, often just uh, see what's happening around the world and uh, have some breakfast and then usually I've got meetings that start from sort of 8 30 or, or so sometimes a bit earlier depending on on which part of the world I'm, I'm meeting with and um, and then yeah it's it's often just setting the direction for teams and then checking in with them and seeing how they're going providing support and um, and you know I in the office I would often go through till six seven eight o'clock at night and then come home 
Uh, it's quite easy to sort of roll into the evening. Um, but since COVID, it's actually been great. I've, I've been more disciplined in the hours I work, which is quite unusual because, you know, I could work all the time and it wouldn't really be any different. But um, I've been, uh, I think someone said the other day, there's there's two Fs to COVID. Um, people either get fitter or fatter through COVID and I've got I've got fitter. So that's, <laughs> that's been good. But, uh, you know, I've been exercising regularly and, and, uh, and got some structure, which has actually been great. You have reached that meteoric height of being a unicorn. I always subscribe as Queensland's chief entrepreneur. We don't have unicorns in Queensland. We have zebras, the rare but real <laughs> creatures, those uh, incredible uh, animals of the horizon plains. Uh, unicorn status. Tell us a little bit about what success looks like for you and maybe not just as the founder, but what would be one of the most incredible moments in the journey of safety culture? And I know that you've just recently uh, run through a really pivotal moment, not only for yourself as the founder, but for your founding team and, and the wider safety culture team. Yeah, Leanne, I think um, one of the, the greatest milestones to date would certainly be allowing the employees to participate in our latest funding round where they were able to sell some of their equity. So for years, we've t given people part of the company as they've joined. So we've never paid big salaries, but we've always given them a, a piece of the company. And so it never really meant much to a lot of people because we were all just working away and, and getting a salary. And so in order for us to be able to stay private for longer, you know, some people joined eight years ago when the tech side of the business began, um, I thought oh, we need to create liquidity for these people to sell some of their shares. So um, the employees that have been there for three years or more could sell up to 30% of, of their stock. And, um, and that became life-changing amounts of money for people. So to have, you know, team members send me photos of them hugging their families and saying, you know, to their kids that they've paid off the house and they don't owe the bank any more money, it was pretty special. So I think um, that's, that's one of the proudest moments of the whole journey for sure. Let's dig a little bit deeper into that moment. We call it an ESOP plan, employee share option plan. Was this always in your plan from day one? And tell us a little bit about the roadblocks or the hurdles that were put up in front of you that prevented you from doing it before now. Well, I actually never really knew much about it, to be honest. I was just building a regular business in Townsville, selling safety documents. I had uh, an office here in Brisbane and we had telemarketers that would contact businesses and go and help them with their, their safety procedures and things. And that was just a terrible business. And uh, and then um, in 2012, we got the first pair of Google Glass outside of America and ended up on the project on Channel 10. And uh, and next thing we had investors ringing us to see what we were doing with them. And uh, and so long story short, we had Rick Baker from Blackbird Ventures walk down the driveway in Townsville into the garage. And uh, here were, you know, six of us working on this app that uh, people around the world were using. And um, and he introduced me to two guys that he said might be able to help. Their names were Mike Cannonbrooks and Scott Farquhar. And uh, that really changed everything. I, I didn't know what venture capital was until then. I didn't know anything about ESOPs or employee shares or anything. And so once uh, once we then started working with, with those guys, everything changed. And uh, I think a lot of people's lives have changed for the better since. What a great story. So many photo albums of memories. We think as founders, do you think about the exit when you started? Tell us some of those conversations over the course of time. I think I was just so naive. I didn't I didn't think about exits. I remember the first time I went over to Silicon Valley and I'd meet other founders and they'd say, you know, what's your exit strategy? And I felt stupid because I didn't have one. I hadn't thought about it. And, uh, and so, you know, I think it took me a few years to come to terms with the fact that I was doing my life's work. This is this is the work that I'll probably look back on and, and say, well, that's what I put my time into and that's what, what I largely contributed to. And so, um, 
I was okay with that after a while. And to this day, I still don't have an exit strategy, funnily enough. Um, but I think it's always important to create options along the way that if you were to make different decisions or have a different path that, that you could take them. And so I think there's an exit strategy in the sense that I've always, there's always options available, particularly if you build a successful company. We get contacted probably once a week from someone around the world that is interested in buying us and we've never, never entertained it. But um, uh, when the day comes, if it comes, we would have options for sure in, in terms of what we do. And tell me, does the motivation for starting the business change as you run the business through time, and particularly now you've seen generational impact, as you said, there's photos and experiences of family hugging their families now. What motivates you and what does success look like for Luke? Yeah, I think it has changed over time. I think initially I just wanted to start a small business and, and one day I dreamed that all the businesses in Townsville could be customers and then we realised you know, people outside of that could also be customers and it just kept growing. So I think the, the underlying reason I did it though was to help people go home at the end of the day. I'd seen 2,500 cases where everyday people had been injured at work and I thought, okay, I want to be part of the solution instead of sort of reacting after the fact. And so that's been constant throughout. Um, now people use us for quality as much as safety. So, um, yeah, the, the scope of who uses our products is much broader than it was in the beginning. You know, people checking how well a sandwich is made at a subway store, you know, taking photos of it, things like that. That's not stuff that we ever really thought of in the beginning. And that's what a lot of our customers use us for today, things like that. United Nations using us for checkpoints in Afghanistan. When they set them up, they take photos and make sure they're all right and things like that. So, you know, that's definitely... Um, sort of evolved over time and the ambitions got bigger. In terms of success for me, I think, um, you know, just looking back on what we've built so far and realising we're probably half of 1% of the way there, uh, we never really feel like we've achieved anything in particular, but I think, you know, sure, you look back and say, wow, it's pretty cool. Um, but I think personally, just to be able to you know, be myself and, um, and and be okay with that, I think it's for a long time you're trying to prove yourself, you've got people who are doubting you, that whole journey. And I think it took a while for me to be able to just be okay with who I am and know that I'm not going to please everyone all the time. And uh, and to take your friends and family along the way, because no matter what you achieve, if you get to the end of the road and you've got no one to share it with, it's uh, what's it all been for. That's so true. From Subway sandwiches to the United Nations, from Townsville to Tel Aviv, and who knows, Luke, might even be the Taj Mahal. <laughs> Give us a little insight into what's next. Uh, look, we've just continued to evolve in terms of how we help customers monitor what's working well and what's not in the workplace. So we went from a checklist app to also helping them report incidents when things go wrong. We've um, also acquired part of a training platform for delivering training. Uh, we built our own hardware and sensor line for people to be able to check uh, things in the workplace automatically. Um, customers were checking, you know, coal stores were checking their fridges every day with our app and recording the temperature. We now just send them a sensor and we tell them if there's a problem on their phone. And so we're expanding the way we gather data. And, and, and blending our data with other data sets, telematics and the data from vehicles and things like that. Um, so it just continues to grow and to this sort of alerts platform now for distributed teams rather than just a checklist app, which is how we started. Well, there's no doubt about it, Luke. You were one of the titans of our regional <laughs> industries here in Queensland and certainly feel a lot safer in the world because of safety culture. So thank you so much for the contribution. Now let me Leanne explain you. This week I ask, what's an exit strategy and why would I need one when I'm just starting out? You know, believe it or not, I never start a company without a good exit. So here's my three minutes. What startup founders should know about exits. The dream of a startup founder can often be summarized 
By hearing the following well-intentioned words, we'll raise a few rounds and in a few years we'll IPO on the NASDAQ. But a more likely scenario looks something like this. You invest a few years of hard work to build something of value and one day an acquisition offer out of the blue arrives. You are completely elated and yet you're not prepared. You drop everything and focus on the opportunity. Exclusive due diligence starts, your company is a mess, IP, contracts, burnout. Days become weeks, weeks become months. You've neglected the business and fundraising and you're running out of money. And M&A is now your one and only option. But the buyer says they found a bunch of cockroaches in the walls and dropped the price. Now what? Sounds unlikely? No, not so much. Investors live by exits, but many founders keep dreaming of unicornization and avoid the E word until it's well too late. Exits matter because that's when you, your team, and your investors get paid. Oddly enough, and to use a chess metaphor, we hear a lot about the opening game, lean startups, the mid game, growth, but very little about the end game. But one of the biggest secrets, companies are bought, not sold. Unicorn or not, the most likely exit is an acquisition. And here's the final twist, exits are not exits. When you are attracted by a buyer, an M&A or an IPO, they generally hope the founders would stay on for many, many years. And often they use revesting, earnouts, and even more shares of the acquiring company to incentivize them to stay. So the average age of a startup at a point of exit is around 10 years, particularly large scale scale up companies. The active duty period of the founder, if not replaced in the meantime, extends even longer. So hey everyone, you better love the problem you're solving and the customers that you're servicing because you'll be around for a lot longer than just the exit signaling. Unkempt, it's hosted by me, Leanne Kemp, and produced by the Office of Queensland Chief Entrepreneur and our Mike and mates at the Content Division. Hey, you like what you hear? Well, head over to your podcast platform of choice and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. For more tips, why don't you visit chiefentrepreneur.qld.gov.au. Thanks for listening.